Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Richard Reeves. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute, where his research focuses on social mobility, inequality, and the middle class. Richard's new book is called Of Boys and Men, and it's all about the specific problems facing men in American society. We talk about whether there is any need to address male-specific problems in the first place. We discuss whether gender differences come from nature or nurture. We talk about the so-called feminization of society. We talk about the advantage that girls have in our education system, the wisdom of age segregation in K-12 schooling, the gender disparity in ADHD diagnoses, how the labor market has become less male-friendly, the suicide gap between men and women, the intersection of race and maleness, the unique struggles of black boys, and much more. So without further ado, Richard Reeves. Okay, Richard Reeves, thanks so much for coming on my show. Well, thank you for having me, Coleman. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. So I met you a few months ago at a conference and we had really great conversations about a lot of different topics. And you told me about this upcoming book you were writing, which is now out. And you know, the book is about, you'll get to describe all of it, but it's about the problems facing boys and men in our society. So my first question is, how dare you? Everyone knows that we live in a patriarchy. There is a pay gap to the favor of men. Roe versus Wade was just overturned. We're on the heels of the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. And you have the audacity to write a book about the unique problems facing men. So the question is, why do that? Why now? And what brings you to this topic personally? I think in some way, the irony is that the very successes of the women's movement uh, have allowed us to take more seriously some of the problems of boys and men. I don't think this is a book that one would have been writing 30, 40 years ago, when essentially the fight for gender equality was virtually synonymous with the fight for women and girls. It was very hard to find metrics where women and girls weren't very clearly behind boys and men. But the very success of that liberation movement has been such that there are now some inequalities that run the other way. And I'm sure we'll get into some of those in education and so on too. So I think in some ways it's a gift of the success of the women's movement is to look at equality more broadly and to recognize that there are not only many inequalities that still affect girls and women, you've just mentioned a couple that we can get into, but that there are also some that disproportionately affect boys and men and that we should be able to think two thoughts at once and we should be able to look in both directions. And so I think it's precisely because we've uh, had so much progress that we can now responsibly address gender inequality in both directions. So in what domains of society if you can just give a short summary and then we'll go deeper into each one. In what domains of society are men struggling uniquely? The three areas that I focus on primarily, and I, sh- I should say perhaps I didn't answer the second half of your question, that I've been interested in issues of inequality and gender for a long time. But the really is I, I've raised three boys to adulthood, but also my day job, just looking at some of the trends and particularly for working class and black boys and men. The trends just became unignorable for me. And I really did feel that there was a, a gap here that needed to be filled in terms of a, an attempt to just call these problems as I, as I saw them from, I hope, an authentically feminist perspective with feminism defined as being about equality. And the three in particular areas that I focus on are in education, where there is a large and in many cases growing gender gap in education. So to sharpen the point, let's take four-year college degrees. The gender gap in four-year college degree attainment is wider today than it was in 1972 when the Title IX legislation was passed to help girls and women, but it's the other way around. There's now a 15 percentage point gap in favor of women as opposed to a 13 percentage point gap in favor of men back then. And in, in every, basically every advanced economy and every level of education, you're seeing just a stark gender gap 
in education. In the workplace, the story is a little bit more complicated because, of course, it is still true, as you alluded to earlier, that on average, there's still a somewhat higher male wage than female one, although for all kinds of reasons we can get into largely around parenting. But it's also true that most men in the US today earn less than most men did in 1979. So if American men were a country, they're poorer today than 40 years ago. That's a remarkable economic fact. And particularly for men at the bottom of the economic ladder and for black men, we're seeing very slow economic progress or indeed stagnating economic progress. And that's partly related to the collapse of traditionally male jobs in manufacturing and heavy industry and a failure on our part to help men into the jobs of the future. And then the third area is the family, where I think the very success of the women's movement in achieving one of its central goals, which is greater economic independence for women, has really, I think, asked new questions about what it means to be a father. And I think to some extent, we're seeing too many fathers being benched because they don't or can't fill the traditional male role of breadwinner. And that world is not coming back anytime soon, and nor do we want it to. But we haven't replaced that with what I want to see, which is a much more positive role for fathers as an independent social institution, independent of marriage. And so the result of those trends is to leave quite a lot of men somewhat dislocated, disoriented, and somewhat lost. And it's that group really that, that uh, aroused my concern and compassion, honestly, as I was attempting to, to chart the course through the book. All right. So we're going to hit all three of those topics and some others. Well, let's just go one at a time. Let's start with education. So 50 years ago, men were more likely to go to college. And, um, you know, some decades before that, it was a very rare and daring thing to be a woman that, that goes to college and quote unquote competes with the boys. That world is in the rearview mirror. And we now face a world where men are less likely to graduate high school than women, less likely to complete college than women to the point where colleges in some cases have to use a kind of affirmative action for men to get some kind of gender parity. I mean, I know, I remember from going to Columbia, the ratio of men to women was was definitely there was more women than men. So what is behind this trend? What's going on here? Well, you're right in the general description. So on campuses now, it's about 60, 40 female, male students, and the gap has completely reversed. And it's worth saying, I think, at this point that nobody expected that. I've talked to a lot of the folks who were writing about gender inequality in education in the 1970s and really fighting to get Title IX through and get and do much more to get women and girls into education and through education. Nobody expected the overtaking. There isn't, you can't find a single paper that said, well, wait, what, what if the line just keeps going? So it has been genuinely unexpected. And I still think everyone's coming to terms with that unexpected and significant overtaking. And and you're right, more likely to graduate high school on time, more likely to go from high school to college, much more likely to go to college, much more likely to complete college on time uh, rather than drop out, etc. And the result of that is, is these big gender gaps. And you're also right, there is this interesting sidebar that the only institutions that can practice sex discrimination in admissions are private undergraduate colleges who got a carve out from Title IX discrimination law. And the reason they got the carve out was to protect single sex colleges. If you made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex, then you were overnight going to abolish all the single sex colleges. Mm. And so there's this carve out. But now the carve out is being used for those private colleges to discriminate slightly in favor of men in an attempt to remain closer to 50-50. Meanwhile, the public colleges that can't discriminate because they didn't get the carve out in Title IX, they're much more like 60-40 because they can't. They can't do this kind of stealth affirmative Mm -hmm. action thing. What's interesting about that is less in some ways the affirmative action thing in these small colleges. It's more, what does it say? What does it say that some of these elite colleges especially are having to have a slightly lower bar for men than women in order to try and maintain something close to 50-50? What it says is that girls are outperforming boys very strongly throughout the education system, including up to the point of college admissions. And I think that's for the simple reason that the boys mature a bit later than girls, which is why I think we should give them, uh, start them in school a year later, but maybe we'll get into some of those details. Yeah, let's get into that because, I mean, this is one of those truisms that I've heard people say my whole life, you know, girls mature faster than boys. I think in your book, you say there's some evidence that it's it's something like two or three years faster in ter- at, at some time in childhood. Is that, that was surprising to me. Yeah. So, um, it's it's not a truism. It's true. Yeah. That on you know, I think that's that's an important distinction that it's like. But but it's interesting. Like, and I've shared this drafts of this book and this particular section on this big maturity gap. A lot of a lot of people. In fact, I want to say everyone goes well, duh. Right. Uh, like 
yeah, like tell us something we, we don't know. Okay, we'll just pause there and then say, okay, if it's true that there's at least a year, and it, it depends on how you measure it, depends on which study you look at, but at least a year's gap. In some cases, some argue it's close to two years gap in the development of these crucial parts of the brain in the prefrontal cortex, which is sometimes called the CEO of the brain. It's the bit of the brain that makes you do your homework rather than go out to party. It's the bit of your brain that cares about your GPA. It's the bit of your brain that works on college application essays. It's the bit of the brain that can think to the future in terms of the decisions you're making now. And on average, and again, of course, the distributions overlap, there's a pretty big gender gap. What that means is that a 15-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, everything else equal, are not the same in terms of their development. But the education system really does reward how people do between the ages of 15 and 17, which is Mm. in some ways just when that gap is at its widest. And so there's this truth that girls are earlier than boys, which everyone knows. And it's partly about the timing of puberty as well. But it's a truth that is entirely ignored when it comes to education policy. And I think now we see these growing gaps as a result of women's progress. I don't think we can ignore it any longer. I think if there's such an obvious developmental difference based on sex, then we should take that into account, which is why I propose just starting boys in school a year later by making them a year older in the classroom than the girls they're with on average. That will make them developmentally a little bit closer. They'll be closer to their peers in terms of their development than just using chronological age to do it. But it requires, I think, to agree that there's a problem in the first place before we even get into policy proposals like that. But I was determined to have solutions and a positive agenda here rather than just a long list of laments because I kind of yeah. have plenty of that, I think. That's, I mean, that's an interesting idea. I, I remember it was a few years ago that I first heard anyone question the notion of age segregation. It's like, this is something we take completely for granted in our school system that you should segregate people by age, but that's hardly obvious. Like age is at best a pretty good proxy for maturity and the kind of intelligence that develops year by year, right? That's the reason why age segregation makes any sense at all is because it's a proxy for these other things, maturity and Mm. intelligence. Insofar as we know a systematic way where men and women differ, where those things are not correlated. It would make a lot of sense to not use the imperfect proxy and, and really you know, get to the thing we care about. Um, but I'm curious, how would you... So one theory says this is a problem that could be solved partly or completely by starting boys in school a year, a year later than girls. Another theory would say there is something about the school system in general that just favors girls full stop. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do you... Do you give that notion any stock? And how would you sort of test those competing theories? Yeah, I think, I think both things are true. I think it's true that there is this developmental gap and that we shouldn't, as you just, I think it's, I like the way you just put it, which is this kind of, is a proxy. But if, you, if it turns out to be, if age is not a great proxy for at least one identifiable group, then maybe don't use chronological age or at least stagger it in the way that I've suggested. But, but then once they're in school too, there are some elements of schooling that do seem to be somewhat less friendly to males. It's quite hard to unpick the causal effects here. So we know, for example, that boys seem to do better if there are more male teachers around, uh, especially in some particular subjects like English. And that appears to be particularly true for black boys, interestingly. And so there's something going on there, but we don't really know why. It's hard to say why. And there could be role modeling effects going on there. There could be something around the school ethos. There's just something about the atmosphere of a school. We do know that male teachers tend to be less like the female teachers to sort of problematize certain male behaviors, Mm. perhaps because they recognize them a bit more. But honestly, it's very hard to know what's going on. But we do know that the teaching profession is becoming more female. So only 24% of K-12 teachers are male now, only one in 10 elementary school teachers, and effectively no kindergarten teachers. In fact, as a share of the professions, there are fewer men teaching kindergarten than there are women flying US military plane. Wow. And I'm going to suggest that as a, in terms of social welfare, it'd be more important to get more than 2% of men teaching early years education, not least because of the signaling that it sends to the next generation than it is to have women flying in our fighter jets. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I want the best people flying our fighter jets. I don't care. I just want it's people- It's too late, Richard. Rivers You've been cancelled. You've been cancelled. <laughs> in terms of the defense of the country but in terms of social welfare i think there's a strong case for having more men in those professions and so 
I'm quite convinced that getting more men into teaching would create a more male-friendly education system for some of the reasons that, that I've just suggested. And I think the, the third thing, so we have redshirting, we have more male teachers, but there's a woeful underinvestment in vocational training in the US in particular. And it looks like vocational training to technical training and especially technical high schools and apprenticeships seem to work on average much better for boys and men than they do for girls and women. And so the fact that we're one of the consequences of a kind of college obsession with college as opposed to vocational track has been inadvertently to actually make things a little bit more difficult for boys and men in the education system. So all of this relates to a perennial debate about the differences between men and women. I think no one argues that men and women have all the same traits at the mean, really. You know, for, for one thing, men are much more likely to commit violent crimes, etc. Um, as you say, women are much more likely to teachers, men more likely to be, etc. Everyone's aware of those, but people disagree about the reason for that. And there's a perennial nature versus nurture debate here. Is it that society teaches boys to like fire trucks and blue and teaches girls to like pink and, and ballet? And if society just started teaching differently, then all of the gender differences would disappear? Or is it that men and women are different genetically in the chromosomes and that causes understandable differences in behavior and, and personality at the mean? So all of that is lurking behind this conversation. And I'm curious where you come down on that. Yeah, well, the, the first point I would make is that the, the single biggest difference, uh, particularly in terms of brain development, is not in how men and women develop, but in when. Mm -hmm. And it is this huge difference we just talked about, right? And so there isn't really any controversy about the difference in the maturation rates of girls and boys, right? There, there really isn't. Anybody sensible thinks. When we get to, by the time we get to 25, those differences have gone, but they haven't all gone. And I did decide to include a chapter where I addressed this question of sex differences. It was interesting that some reviewers were saying, well, you don't really need it. You know, maybe go without it. Do you, do you really want to wade into this water? Why, why, why do this? Why get into the extent to which these differences are natural as opposed to socialized? And honestly, one of the reasons I decided to keep yeah, it... Why, why get into one of the most interesting fundamental questions of, of the whole? <laughs> oh, you know why? I mean, you all people, you right. know why, all right? Um, right. Don't make any... And I know it's, if, you're being, if you're trying to be strategic and about a persuasive project like this one, then mm. you know, I think it is important to consider like, which battles to fight and which, mm. uh, which issues to address. But I didn't right. really find very many good faith treatments of the issue out there, honestly. And so, mm. and I thought I could offer one. And so I did get into some of these differences. And the, the things to say are the distributions overlap, the differences at the mean, but they're not trivial in some cases. You've alluded to one already, which is a propensity to aggression. And so, and I find the nature-nurture debate frustrating on a couple of levels. One is obvious, which is it's obviously both, mm -hmm. and everybody will say that. And then they'll, mm -hmm. what people do is they say they both, they both matter and then proceed to only talk about one of them, right. depending on their priors, right? So, so they have a sentence somewhere saying, of course, both matter, but the rest of my book is going to be about why it's all nurture or why mm -hmm. it's all nature. Mm -hmm. So that's frustrating. But the second reason is just because my view is the fact that there are natural differences between men and women in terms of risk-taking, sex drive, aggression, people, things, orientation, doesn't make culture less important. It makes it more important because culture affects the way in which those natural tendencies are expressed or not. Mm -hmm the ways in which they're channeled, the ways in which they're valorized or not. And so it is perfectly possible to say that there is a higher propensity to aggression and violence among men, obvious and true. And that's not just socialization. There's a huge gap. There's like a five-fold gap in rates of aggression at 17 months old. Mm. And I think you have to be borderline nuts to think that by the age of 17 months, you've been so thoroughly socialized into thinking that boys hit each other and girls don't, that that's the reason for the gap. Mm -hmm. And so... But we also have to take into account the fact that rates of violent crime have halved in the last few decades and that rates of violent crime are completely different in one country compared to the country right next to it. And so the idea that culture doesn't matter for the way in which an innate tendency expresses itself or doesn't is just crazy. The denial of natural differences ironically ends up meaning we pay less attention to culture and to the institutions and norms that help us to manage nature. Mm -hmm. and so there's a, there's a weird byproduct of the blank slate approach is to actually take culture less seriously than we ought to. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's always been in some way a false dichotomy or a false framing in the narrow sense that part of human nature is to absorb culture. The reason we absorb culture 
is because we are wired to absorb culture, right? Like we're wired to pick up the language that we grow up learning, to pick up, to imitate. And so in that sense, it's- Yeah, I think, I mean, Roy Roy Baumeister's book on this, The Cultural Animal, is mm -hmm. I think just a brilliant statement of that. And and Joseph Henry. It's like what, what separates us most- Arguably, from other yes, animals. we're evolved. We're evolved to be cultural animals. And Joseph right. Henrik's work, I also cite quite a lot on coevolution and how mm-hmm. culture and nature coevolve. That's really where that's where the serious scholarship is. And so, what it is, the question then is like, okay, so let's think about what kinds of cultural institutions and norms bring out, say, the best in men mm-hmm. and bring out the best in women if they mm-hmm. differ on average. And I think that's the real question. And that question is avoided by an insistence that it's either one or the other. Have you heard of of the notion of the feminization of Western society? I mean, I've read some things which have sort of coined this phrase that Western nations have undergone a feminization process in the past 50 years, which is to say the cultures and structures have become more friendly to attributes held more often by females than by men. Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it was in many ways the opposite. I mean, I, I think there's certainly something to this. I mean, there's, there's no denying that it's happened. I mean, there's some people that think it's a bad thing. I probably see more positives than I do do negatives in it. So like, for example, the, the total overhaul in the culture of bullying in America, right? Like hmm. you talk to people who grew up two generations ago, the concept that bullying was a big problem in school to be solved would be laughed out of, you know, it it would just be laughed out of the average dinner table conversation. Whereas now schools in general take bullying as a concept to be inherently bad and to be something to really crack down on and and take seriously. And, um, you know, if typically, if stereotypically male values were to rule society, I think the attitude towards bullying would be suck it up. Yeah, well... In general, I think that the the folks who are talking about the feminization of culture are largely mistaking the equalization of culture for the feminization, right? And what we're seeing is just a balancing of the culture in such a way that let's let's use the let's use the labels of feminine and masculine with all the caveats of overlapping and on average, and not say that every time because that's boring. That's boring for us if we have to keep saying that every time. So we'll just take it for Mm -hmm. granted, right? We're in a square bracket on average, the distributions overlap. That if there are these differences, then actually giving more equal weight to concerns from both sides is important. So bullying is a great example. Like when I hear my kids talk about it, I've just, so my kids are in their twenties now, I'm in my early fifties. The school I went to, there was a lot of physical bullying and I spent Mm -hmm. quite a bit of time physically afraid. And there were certain areas you really didn't want to go to and people you needed to avoid and really bad things that could happen to you. And I was fearful. I mean, I, re- I can remember to this day some of the physical fear I would feel in parts of the school around certain people, fear, you know, fear for bodily fear. And I talk to my kids about that now and they have no idea what I'm talking about. It's like I've come from mm. another planet. The idea that people are actually right. hitting each other or spitting on each other or bringing knives out on yep. each other, it's literally an alien, but they have no idea what I'm talking about. I have mm. to tell you, I think that's a great development. Now, mm. could it go too far the other way such that some of the normal friction of growing up becomes mislabeled as bullying because of an oversensitivity to anything that could possibly be considered bullying? Sure, absolutely. Which is why we need the balance, which is why, mm. which is why I think gender balance is good because to the extent they're different, that's why male teachers are good. That's why it's good to have male teachers and female teachers because they're each going to bring different sensitivities and sensibilities to the question. But by and large, I got to tell you, it looks to me more like equalization than feminization. And we haven't got to a point yet where I'm very troubled in many areas about the fact that this has become too feminized with the possible exception of educational success, mm-hmm. which I'm afraid is getting wrapped up with feminine identity in a way that could be dangerous. I, yeah, I think I really do think, and I agree with you about this, I think most domains of society have just been equalizing, but education specifically has probably feminized. It's probably, it's probably tilted to favor the average woman more than the average man. And one area that, that is really related here is, is the notion of ADHD. Like This is something mm. I, I sometimes get into trouble with because I really question the pathologizing of the kid that can't sit still in class, right? Like the truth is I've never met anyone that can't focus in general ever. Mm-hmm. Right. I've met people that cannot focus when they're sitting for six hours a day, you know, getting information fed to them 
in a way that is totally unnatural to the human condition. But, you know, like as a musician, for example, I know brilliant and successful professional musicians, not just mediocre, amazing musicians that can sit and practice a piano if they're interested for five, six hours, but cannot read a homework assignment that they find boring, right? That's not mm-hmm. a generic inability to pay attention. That's boredom with a very specific task that we demand of people only in the past couple hundred years. And we give these people Adderall and, and just not to say we shouldn't be giving them Adderall necessarily. I'm not giving medical advice, but we have this category of ADHD, which, which again is like, I looked it up just today. You'd probably know better, but according to Google, it's like four to one diagnosis, male versus female, right? It's like four yes. boys being diagnosed for every, every one girl being diagnosed. And basically we are saying you have a disorder because of your inability to sit still in a classroom for six hours, five days a week, nine months out of, out of the year where it's possible just school, that kind of school is not going to be where you flourish in life and that's okay. It's like, for instance, if somebody can't run really fast and jump high and isn't super coordinated, we don't say you have a disorder. We just say probably pro sports is not for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yet we pathologize something that I consider normal, which is only being able to focus on stuff you really, really, really like. I, yeah, I agree with everything you've just said, and it's quite personal for me. It's quite clear now that you know one of my kids has been diagnosed with quite, you know, quite well. He's grown now, but with quite severe ADHD, it's obvious that that's what I would have been labeled with when I, when I was at school. Mm. But we didn't have diagnosis then, and there was enough flexibility. I think in the curriculum, it wasn't quite so rigid that you couldn't wriggle your way through. And I think it's one of the reasons why vocational learning can be really helpful. I'm thinking about there is this ability to hyper-focus as well. So I'm thinking about my son in particular is like really, really struggled in school for precisely the reasons that you've just said, which is the need to sustain attention at a task that's intrinsically dull Mm -hmm. because your prefrontal cortex is telling you It'll help you get to college, which will make for a good life, right? Which boys don't have to anything like the same extent as girls. And so you're just like, you're dying inside. I remember at school, just looking out of the window and, and imagining things in my head, just to sort of survive, make, making mm-hmm. up stories in my head, just mm-hmm. to survive the excruciating sense of sitting in that plastic chair <laughs> for so long. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, then I saw my yeah. son go through it too. And But get him on a task he's interested in, a refrigerator breaks and he has to completely take the circuit board apart and fix it. Five hours completely Mm. undivided, like actually you can't get him to stop focusing on it because he's got interested in it. And I agree. So pedagogically, the danger is the education system as inadvertently, and I'm not going to blame anybody for this, has just ended up being structured in a way that is less male friendly. It does reward long periods of sitting still. Boys do need more physical outlet. That ability to kind of focus on intrinsically quite dull tasks rather than let them be more project-led, more focus on like books rather than vocational, et cetera. So you're right. And the danger is then it gets pathologized. So the ADHD numbers are striking. But I also discovered when I was looking at this that 23% of American boys are diagnosed with some kind of developmental disability. And I have to think, really? Maybe it's the system at that point, right? Mm-hmm. When you get into those sorts of numbers, you think, really, that does... That, uh, and it's correct against all these definitions, including things like ADHD, that they have a developmental disability. But there's a certain point where you have to start to wonder if it's the institutions yeah. that are failing the boys rather than the boys that are failing in the institution. Yeah. And I would make a sharp distinction between something like ADHD and something like autism, because if you have autism or Asperger's and you struggle to understand people's facial cues, that's a mm-hmm. disadvantage regardless of how society is structured. That's intrinsically a disadvantage in life given how important human communication is, right? Whereas in most societies up till about two seconds ago, and in some societies today, the suite of symptoms we call ADHD might not be dysfunctional at all. It would be mm-hmm. totally within the realm of normal and, and in some in some sense positive. It's like like you said, I've been a you know I'm a person that some people view as as smart, and I read books and I interview people like you, and you're a guy that writes books, and I'm I'm writing my yes, books as and well. you're writing a book, right? Yeah. Yet I've I've struggled mightily mightily to pay attention and focus even for very short periods of time in classes that the majority of classes I had in college and many in high school too. I mean, it was a mighty struggle for me. If I wasn't able to cram lots of information in an emergency setting before an exam, I would have Mm -hmm. done poorly instead of excellently at Columbia. And my intelligence, whatever intelligence I have is really, it's almost only brought out when I'm interested, super interested in something. And then I can focus for lengths of time that are like possibly dysfunctional. Yeah. So. And it's also why 
it's, it's why I have, why in the long run, I think we, we, it all kind of works out because the labor market, you know, assuming you have a pretty pluralistic labor market, provides lots of opportunities to match your particular mm-hmm. idiosyncrasies to a role. And so like, if you've got my kind of attention deficit problems, which sounds like it's similar to yours, then actually being a journalist was terrific. Right, hyper focus for a while on something. There's a subject I was interested in, it was economics, and then mm-hmm. file it and then start again the next day. Yeah, it was fast. It was high adrenaline. All of those things work. And and then I just you know I always found ways to do work that's intrinsically interesting to me. And because it's interesting to me, and I have cognitive skills, I can succeed at it. Yeah. And so the labor and, and the labor market, I think it just has so many niches in it. I say this to my kids all the time. It's like don't worry about school. It'll be okay in the labor market. Mm. <laughs> but the education system is the opposite. The education system is the opposite of plural. It's incredibly unitary. It's incredibly prescriptive. And it rewards these non-cognitive skills, the ability to stick with tasks that are not intrinsically that interesting, but which will pay off in certain tangible ways in the education system. Those are rewarded, like your GPA. And you're seeing colleges now moving away from even using the SAT or ACT in admissions, which means GPA will get more important. Mm. And girls are smoking boys at GPA. Among mm. the high school schoolers with the top 10% GPAs, two thirds of them are girls. At the bottom, two thirds of them are boys. And GPA is a great example of something that does reward the stuff that many people struggle with and boys especially, which is turning in the homework, doing the boring stuff. Why would you do that? (laughs) And the answer is because it'll get you a good GPA. But why do you care about a good GPA? get to a good college. Why do you care about that? I mean, you can't, you're not future oriented enough to think about that. And so that's one of the ways in which the education system is structured to favor girls on average than boys. Again, totally, it's not a feminist plot. You know, feminists didn't sit down a hundred years ago and design the education system this way. In fact, they, they weren't the ones doing it. It was men, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now that girls have had the sort of breaks taken off, heading off to college in such numbers, I think we can see how the education system is structurally not working for boys yeah. um, and men. And we can well, we can have some positive solutions to it. And that doesn't in any way mean we should be trying to roll back the tide on women's educational success. It means we should be helping the boys and men keep up. So that dovetails right into the conversation about the labor market and men dropping out of the labor force, uh, men not working in as high numbers as as they used to. So can you give us a sense of what the change has been here in the past 50 years and what's behind it? Yeah, so there's been a long run drop in, in male labor force participation. But it's important to be specific here because the large majority of the drop is among less educated men. So among high school educated men, it's like one in three out of the labor force, about 5 million men. Nick Eberstadt out of AEI has a, has a new book out on what, what's you know, non-working men, what are they doing? And he shows quite clearly that it is, it is less educated. So the, the, the more education guys have, the higher generally their labor force participation rates are. So it's a general long-term trend, but huge class gaps. Uh, meanwhile, we've seen women's labor force participation rise, although it has leveled out a little bit recently. So then the question is why, and I think there are some good reasons why, which is we have seen the rise in the ability of women to, and so at the margins, you're seeing some men who don't have to earn. But the much bigger reasons, I think, are that traditionally male jobs have declined precipitously over the last 40, 50 years. And this is obvious, manufacturing, heavy industry, et cetera. And men haven't, by and large, moved into some of the growing occupations, which are more female-dominated, such as in health and education, at all. And so they're somewhat stuck between the labor market of their dad and the labor market of their wife and haven't managed to kind of make that adjustment back through. It's not helped when politicians come along and promise to wave a magic wand and bring back the labor market of the 50s. So the result of that is quite a bit of detachment um, from men. But by and large, they're not coming out of the labor I wish I could say they were coming out of the labor market to care for kids and care for others. By and large, not. By and large, it's not clear exactly what a lot of them are doing when they're out of the labor market. But it's not, unlike for women, when women aren't in the labor market, it's usually because they're doing something else. With men, it's not clear what they're doing. And I think there we have to ask ourselves hard questions about the role of men and the role of men in the family. I think that the danger is of making men feel benched if they can't fulfill the traditional breadwinner role. That reduces their incentive Mm -hmm. to go into the labor market. I'm sure that's part of the story. Right. So if a man feels like what he's good at is the breadwinning, not the child rearing, and he would have done really well in a factory job that allowed him to get proverbial white picket fence 50 years ago, let's say, but those jobs just aren't available, you're saying you know he is less likely to work or less likely to even try to find a job 
because it's less certain or it seems less certain that he would even be able to be a breadwinner for a family given the jobs he could do. Yeah, that's right. The causal arrow, as or, as usual, runs runs both ways. I think it's quite clear that changes in family structure have had an effect on male labor supply. And so to the extent that a guy doesn't feel like he has to fill that role of breadwinner, that reduces his incentives to be in the labor market. But it's also true that if men are out of work or struggling to earn a decent wage, that makes them much less attractive as marriage mm. prospects or as mate prospects. And so they're less right. likely to form a family. And so, and there's good evidence for both of those trends, I think, which is that they're basically feeding off each other. And so that's a particular issue in the lower income, the community, the more true that is, because that's where men's wages have, have absolutely cratered at the bottom of the labor market. And so you're seeing, you know, they're also actually very often places where these traditional roles are quite often still held, at least in theory, which is this idea of the male breadwinner. So in precisely the parts of the country and among the men who are least able to fulfill this traditional role, that's quite often where the role is still held Mm. uh, as this kind of ideal. And so the tragedy is that actually it's the very men who feel most strongly they should be the breadwinner who are least able to be the breadwinner in today's labor market. Mm. So there's a big lag there. And the result, I think, is that men effectively bench themselves because the message from society is still, they feel, is still, if you can't be a breadwinner, what use are you? And many of them can't be a breadwinner, certainly can't be a sole breadwinner anymore. And so this sense of redundancy isn't just an economic term. It actually starts to feel like a cultural redundancy as well, which results in a lot of these men being somewhat lost because they look at the mothers of their kids who are working and raising the kids. Meanwhile, the mothers are having to do everything. (laughs) So the tragedy here is it's terrible for women as well, because they end up working what Harley Holstrial calls the, the second shift. You, you're, the, you're the breadwinner and the carer. And that's true for a huge number of women. Mm-hmm. Do you connect this in your mind at all to the problem of death, deaths of despair? You know, obviously the, the opioid crisis is the main case of this. There are the massive rise in opioid deaths and fentanyl deaths, but just deaths of despair in general, suicide, which is disproportionately a male phenomenon. So I guess Questions are, do you connect the labor force issue to that? Uh, does, is that trend that makes sense with the data? And also, can you just speak a little bit about suicide mm. in general? And a lot of people don't know that most suicides are, are by men to begin with. And so can you talk a little bit about the source of that gender disparity too? Yeah, this, it is about a threefold gap that men are through about, about three times more likely to commit suicide than women. It varies a little bit across the age range. And actually there's a, a race gap there too, to make things even more complicated. Actually, middle-aged white men are at the highest risk of suicide, followed by young white men. And so there is there's race, there's class, there's gender, but the biggest gap of all is this is this gender one. You see it, you see it in in a lot of different places. And when I was doing this work, I came across this study by I can't remember her first name now, Dr. Shand, it's an Australian researcher. And they'd done something really interesting, which is they had they'd looked at the phrases that men had used before committing suicide or attempting suicide in terms of trying to get it like motivations. And the top words that they found were words like worthless and useless. And so I think that this sense of what's the point of me, what's my purpose, what value am I bringing is what lies behind a lot of suicide for sure. Mm-hmm. And so it relates to some of the conversations we were just just having. Uh, it's worth saying, I think, that their attempted suicide uh, rates, the gap in attempted suicide rates is much less. It's in completed suicides where it's it's really big. But more generally, the deaths of despair point is a good one. It's about a threefold difference there as well. Like Men are three times more likely to die from either suicide or some sort of drug overdose or alcohol. And I think that is about this purpose and connection that you feel and it's striking that one of the reasons why opioid deaths are so so much higher than for other drugs is because the user is very often on their own and mm-hmm. indoors. And so, whereas you think about some drugs, they're drugs you take when you want to go party, mm-hmm. right? Or you want to chill with your friends. So smoke pot to chill with your friends. You might have MDMA because you're going out to a club. Or mm-hmm. Opioids you take on your own. Opioids are drugs of retreat and drugs of despair. They're painkillers in the broader sense, I think. And so... It's no surprise to me that it is working class men who are particularly vulnerable to opioid o- overdoses. And as I said, they're very often just found on their own. Um, they were not partying. They were not with somebody else. They were, they were alone. And I think that the dislocation that a lot of men are facing, especially working class men, is at the root of many of these deaths of despair problems. So you had a, a neat, if not solution, a, a way forward on the education issue. Do you have a way forward on, on the labor market issue? Yeah. I mean, I think the big one for me is just look at where where the jobs are coming from. 
and help men to get into them. That sounds like a very simple solution, but it's a real problem that we've worked very hard to get women into many previously male-dominated jobs, um, but we haven't done the same the other way around. And so a good example here is STEM. One of the things I also discovered was that the original acronym wasn't STEM, it was SMET. And then uh, the woman, and she changed it. She was like, this is a terrible acronym. I'm going to change it to STEM. And literally overnight. Sounds like a fluid that shouldn't be coming out of one of my body parts or something. (laughs) I don't know where to go with it, but but (laughs) SMET was a really hard sell. STEM turned out to be app went absolute gangbusters. There was mm-hmm. almost immediately a caucus in Congress. There was a discussion, and so so, and it became like so. It was a brilliant move on her part to get an acronym, in. and actually, we've you know, partly because of just we needed it for the nation, but also just getting women into STEM was a big thing, as well as women into law and medicine and all those other professions that were previously very, very male indeed, I mean, hugely male dominated. But a lot of the jobs that are growing fastest now are in what I call the heel sector. So that's the that's like the mirror image of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math is heel, which is health, education, administration, literacy, literacy skills, as opposed to math, math, mathematical skills. And they're like huge sectors like nursing, teaching, psychology, social work, counseling, social care, provision, etc. And for every one job we're going to create in STEM between now and 2030, we're going to create about three in heel. But those professions are not only incredibly female dominated, they're becoming, most of them are becoming more so. And so it's, so the gender desegregation of the labor market has been almost entirely one way. And in some cases, it's been quite precipitous, the decline, like psychology. I'll take one example. Psychology has gone from 39% male to 29% male the last decade. And among psychologists under the age of 30, only 5% are male. So you just you know, run that forward in terms of what it will mean. And that matters a lot wow. for clients as well, by the way, for providers. But, but from an economic point of view, getting helping to get men into those jobs through scholarships, just like as we did for women into STEM, through subsidies to employers, diversify those sectors, including this massive male recruitment drive into teaching, which I just um, referred to. So I think that's it. Men are a little bit stuck right now between like this world as it was and the world as it is. And we have to destigmatize and de-gender some of these professions. Nursing is another great example. We're still only at 12% nursing, but a male. And that's mm-hmm. just a crazy low number given what a huge occupation that is. And of course, in some of these occupations like nursing and teaching, we're facing potential big labor shortages, but we're trying to solve them with only yeah. half the workforce. So, I mean, th- this is where you bump up against politics. I'm picturing a world where your message reaches the relevant decision makers and people say, well, shit, we really have to get more men into these female dominated professions. And, you know, I- I'm just picturing the first person that says that before the world being absolutely destroyed on Twitter by called a male rights activist saying, oh, so you want to have scholarships specifically for men to become psychologists or, or nurses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boo-hoo. Don't you realize women are you know, by far more oppressed in our society? And I fear that that person would just get laughed out of the room and everyone who agrees with that person would, would get you know, terrified into silence. You can, you can start saying Richard Reeves rather than that person at this point, <laughs> You're being very polite, but everyone listening, that person, yeah, yeah, yeah. who could you be talking about? <laughs> right, right. But, but yeah, I mean, it's a, we'd have to undergo a serious cultural shift in the elites and the elites and, and, and dis- relevant decision makers for this, for the logic of these points to be carried out in policy. I mean, I could imagine it happening in theory. I could imagine it happening, um, you know, pushing boys back going to kindergarten at six instead of five. I can imagine that if public education were at all rational and responsive to like reason and things could change quickly, which all of which is not the case. Hmm. But, you know, I can't imagine it with my current perception of, of the culture, which is a real shame. Well, I mean, I guess to some extent I'm testing that proposition yeah. here. You know, I should say that I lead the argument about getting more men into these occupations with an employment argument, with the, this is where the jobs are coming from. Mm-hmm. But I think if I was, if I'm making the argument Again, in fact, I was, if I could go back and rewrite the, the chapter, I think what I would do, and you're, you know, you're obviously always rewriting even after you've finished writing. I think I'd focus more persuasive to talk about how it's important for those professions and the users of those professions for there to be more men in them. Mm. I, I was talking to you know, a journalist about the book you know, from a very progressive outlet 
and I was interested to know how that would go. And she talked about her dad in a care home and how when he needs to go to the bathroom, which mm-hmm. he needs a lot of help with, mm-hmm. he'd really like a guy, but there are no guys. Right. And I think a lot of women in that situation want the same too. Or if you're a guy and you need to go to see a counselor about you know, an addiction to pornography, maybe that would be easier with a male guy. If you're a boy who's got special yeah, needs sure. at school, yeah. maybe it would be helpful if the special needs teachers had some men. You know, mm-hmm. And so actually, that's a, I find that argument lands much more with people, which is the diversity of those professions is not just because I think we need to help men get into those jobs for their own needs, but because, well, first of all, they've got shortages, but for the users of those services. Do we really want a world where there are no male social workers or male teachers or male nurses or carers? Do you as a man or <laughs> want to be in a hospital where a guy can't help you in the bathroom? Do you? Mm-hmm. Uh, or a woman? I mean, it's like the other end. So I find that argument more persuasive. And if I can persuade with that, then I could say it's going to take some money. We're going to have to incentive because these professions are so gendered it will take special incentives like scholarships and subsidies exactly as we are doing for women into STEM. There are mm-hmm. hundreds of scholarships and subsidies to get women into STEM jobs and STEM, STEM courses at colleges, and that's great. Why can't we do the same? And maybe there are compelling arguments why we can't, but I haven't encountered them yet. And I think, and I think it's time to have that conversation. I think, we, I think we can have that conversation now. Could be proved wrong. Ask me again in two months' time. But it feels to me like we can't just keep watching these professions have fewer and fewer men in them with every year and not do anything about it. That, that feels culturally irresponsible to me. When you were talking just now, I was reminded of a story in my family where my, my uncle, my mother's brother, had HIV in the 90s, AIDS, and was in the hospital. And my father, uh, his, his beard was growing in the hospital bed and it was very itchy and uncomfortable for him. And my father shaved him. And it was, uh, you know, it was quite a big deal because little less was known about AIDS at the time. And it was a scary thing. And you were afraid you could catch it just from, I mean, some people were afraid you could catch it just from contact. Mm. But it was, it was just this moment where he needed a, a man to take care of something that, you know, men know how to do better, namely shave a face. And uh, clearly there were no nurses around to do it. In any event, um, I think that's well, we'll a great see. sort I mean, of line of argument. As I've talked to people about it, I actually find that people are are open to the idea that it would be better to have more men in those professions. Certainly that we shouldn't just mm. we shouldn't just allow these numbers, the trends to go the way they're going and not do anything about it. And mm-hmm. and so let's say let's say it's a problem that we've got fewer and fewer men in these professions, including teaching and psychology and so on. Let's say right. Then the question is, well, what do we do about that? And what why why aren't men going into those professions? And you know, we, we have some data on that. And one of the reasons is because they think it's too female. Mm-hmm. And it looks actually in some cases if it's even sort of disproportionately going to be gay men that select into those mm-hmm. uh, into those occupations as well so mm-hmm. it gets tied up with issues around sexuality as well sometimes too and so unless we can reduce the stigma for men going into those professions my one of my sons is works in childcare and early years education and he runs into this all the time you know he's actually not got jobs explicitly because they say no our, our parents won't trust their kids around a man. Yeah, right. And so we have to be careful. We're going to reap what we sow here. And I think that, so there's a cultural shift here and just some policy, you know, some scholarships, like there's this, an act in, in Congress now called the STEM Restart Act to kind of give employers incentives to take women and ethnic minorities into STEM. Great. How about doing the same for heel jobs for men? And, and I would argue in some cases, especially men of color, but just men. Um, how about that? Like, why not? <laughs> What's the argument against it if you buy that it's a problem and we should do something about it? Because right now, otherwise, we're just, we're just, we're doing nothing. And we're doing nothing because I don't think many conservatives are actually, well, the conservatives who are worried about it don't like the idea of using public policy to address it. <laughs> and the progressives who like using public policy aren't convinced yet that this is a problem we need to address. And so the result is there are no policies to address it. And in fact, no attention is even paid to it. In fact, on the point of progressives, I would go further. I would say for many of them, the ideology they subscribe to in principle blinds them to seeing that this kind of thing could be a problem. In other words, it's not some people that are persuadable by evidence aren't the problem. Generally, people that have an ideology which says women are by nature across the board in every way more oppressed than men. We live in a patriarchy and who, for whom that idea is all-encompassing. There are no exceptions to that 
worth talking about. They're not going to be able to see or be moved in any kind of urgent way by these sorts of arguments. And I mean, that, that comes to... That comes to this argument of the intersection of race and gender here, which is something mm. I've been thinking about a lot. And I, we talked about a few months ago when you mentioned your thesis in this mm. book, ever since the, the rise of intersectionality, of intersectional feminism, which is what Kimberly Crenshaw invented in the late 80s, early, early 90s, there's been this idea that's very popular on elite college campuses and in other places, which basically says different kinds of bigotry are more than the sum of their parts. It basically says there's racism against black people, there's sexism against women, there's homophobia against gays and lesbians, there's transphobia against trans people. And if you're both, if you're a black woman, say, you experience both racism and sexism. And those are kind of more than the sum of their parts. And so you experience more oppression than a black man does. Mm-hmm. That's at yep. least one reading of intersectionality is that, you know, a black woman suffers more than a black man on average. A black trans woman suffers more than a black cis woman, etc. All of these bigotries are additive. Yeah. Can you can you talk about how you evaluate that idea as someone who is thinking about the problems uniquely facing boys? Yeah, sure. And I think it is a good example of the need to avoid these zero-sum games that people on left and right keep trying to trick us into. Like, if we do more, boys and men, it necessarily means doing less for girls and women. So constant zero-sum game thinking, trench warfare, style culture war. And then you turn it to something like the particular position of black boys and men. And I think that's that you see that very, very strongly. And I'll you know, give a specific example of that, where there is now a commission on the social status of black boys and men. It's passed with bipartisan legislation in 2016. It's a standing commission within the, the US Office of Civil Rights to look specifically at black boys and men. And it got through, but there was a lot of resistance from particularly from black women in the Democrat Congressional Caucus because of a sense that why are we looking at boys and men? Something similar happened when Obama did My Brother's Keeper. Like There's this constant sense of like, this is going to distract from the deeper issues faced by black women and girls. Again, zero sum. Again, it's like, we can't do, we can't do two things at once is the basic thought there. Um, so that's an example of just how difficult this can get. But on the point of intersectionality, I think what I try to do, and I do this as a white British immigrant to America. So that's either a good or a bad thing, depending on your perspective, because it means that I am coming at it from a specific perspective. It's definitely not a lived experience, to use that phrase. But I think I'm taking Crenshaw at her word in a way that I don't think her followers or indeed she herself sometimes does, which is to say that what intersectionality means is that the relationships between different identities are not fixed and they can overlap in complex and different ways. And so it's not as if, it's not, it shouldn't be treated as additive. It shouldn't be male always above female, white always above black, et cetera. It will depend on the circumstances. And then when you cut them across each other, things get really interesting. And so look at the race and gender now and white women earn a lot more than black men. Okay. So which binary am I going to go with? Which, which, which binary, you know, wait, what's going on there? Um, Black men are half as likely as black women to go to college and get a college degree. The gender gap between black women and black men on almost every positive uh, dimension is bigger than for other racial groups. And so actually what I think is that black men, and I argue Can you restate that? Because that's a really important point. That's a really important point. Which one? (laughs) It's the top one. That the gender gap between black men and black women on almost anything you can name or care about is much bigger than the gender gap between white men and white women. Well, correct. Yeah, you've just said it better than me. So that's great. Yes. And that's true more generally to accept where it's something where for the other groups, the men are so far ahead. So the wage gap is much narrower between black men and black women. But that's because black men only just out earn black women. And there are actually more black women in the labor force than, than black men. But on all the others, education, health, etc., the gap goes upward, upward mobility, black women, this is Raj Chetty's work now, black women are actually the most upwardly mobile out of the bottom quintile. Black men are the least upwardly mobile with white somewhere in between them. And Mm. so I think it's becoming a borderline irresponsible in some of these, in some cases to use just the racial category to look at the experience because you're then occluding these gigantic gender gaps within Mm -hmm. the black community, between black women and black men. So one more example 
black women now, if they young black women are more likely to have a postgraduate degree than young white men, but black men half as likely. So if you take intersectionality seriously, then you cannot presume just out of the gate, a priori, that black men are above black women. That becomes an empirical question. And I think the empirical answer is no, they're not. And that's before we get into issues of of incarceration, criminal justice, suspension from school, and so on. And so black men are not disadvantaged despite being male, but in some cases because of being male. And that's, I think, applying intersectionality properly. That is what intersectionality should be. If that's what Kimberly Crenshaw had said in her original paper, I think I would be an intersectionalist. I would want to look at the unique ways women suffer, women much more likely to suffer sexual violence, for example and then look at the unique ways in which men are suffering. And that would be a really helpful conversation. What intersectionality is in practice, and I think in her words, is really the simple women have it worse, black women have it worse than black men, black trans women have it worse than black women, because it all adds in this simplistic way. Uh, For example, I, I remember in Kimberly Crenshaw's TED Talk, she does this thing at the beginning of the talk where she asks people to, if they've heard of the names of certain black men killed by the police, you know, have you heard the names Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, Freddie Gray, et cetera, and everyone raises their hands. And then she names a few, the names of, you know, 10 or so black women killed by the cops. And most people haven't heard of them. Very few people have heard of them. And she goes, see, this is intersectionality. So you've heard of the oppression of black men, but you haven't heard of the oppression of black women. And and it's this, it's like, oh, such a deep point. And then my immediate reaction was over 90% of the black people killed by the cops are men. So what she's doing, it's like saying, it's like naming a bunch of famous female rape victims that people may Mm -hmm. have heard of, and then naming a bunch of male rape victims that you haven't heard of, and then saying, well, isn't that funny that you haven't heard of, well, no, it's the overwhelming cases of people getting sexually assaulted and raped is happening to women. That's why we know more cases. And, and so, you know, it's obvious to me with an issue like racial profiling, for instance, I do not think that black women experience as much racism from the cops as, as black men do. I think yeah. black men specifically experience the brunt, the majority of racial profiling and, and the cliche of crossing the street when you see a black man. It, it's the cliches of a black man for a reason. And that goes into especially if you're, if you're a black man from the hood and you have the way of speaking and the way of dressing, you know, that affects you in a job interview. That, that, and it, and yeah. it affects you more if you're a man f- from those areas, I think, in many cases at least, than if you're a woman. And that's a point very few people make. Yeah, it's, again, it's because of this. I think you had Roland Fryer on a little while back talking about some of, the, mm-hmm. some of those stats. And it, again, it's, it's this, it is this fear, I think, that if we think about think, thing A, We'll stop thinking about thing B rather than be able to think about them, rather than be able to think about them both. Right? So if mm-hmm. you start saying there are some really particular ways in which black boys and men are at a disadvantage, not just because they're black, but also because they're men, boys and men, that they face a kind of gendered racism, or if you prefer, just a kind of a form of sexism because they're black, because of the implicit the implicit bias stuff. And there's a huge, you know, not as you probably know, the implicit bias stuff is riddled with all kinds of problems, but. One of the things that comes out of it so strongly that it that it doesn't matter what the methodological issues are is like black men are seen as more threatening, but just like just in a different like and then white women at the bottom. And so there's no question, I think, that culturally there's a there's a sense in which black men are seen as more of a threat on all kinds of levels, I think. And so that means in that in that category, black men are definitely more disadvantaged than black women and than white men, right? And so that's okay. But there are other ways. So for example, there's some evidence that black women face a bit more pregnancy discrimination than women of other races. Mm-hmm. Although interestingly, when I thought about, I was thinking about this in the light of the data, is that might not be completely irrational because, well, no, it is irrational. Because black women actually, no, it's completely the opposite of what it should be because black women are more likely to come back to work straight after having their kid mm-hmm. than women of other races. And yet it looks like they might, they might face a bit more discrimination. And so what we have to do is kind of keep intersecting, I guess, is the problem with intersectionality doesn't go far enough. Not that it's gone too far, it doesn't go far enough. And it doesn't take seriously the idea that things can go in different ways in different places and at different times. That's what I think the theory should allow us to do. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I become angry and cynical when I hear what you said at like around 10 minutes ago, black women politicians 
poo-pooing the idea that there is a special and unique problem to be addressed in black men. That to me, that makes my blood boil because the hypocrisy of a person that only, you know, pretends to be the the torchbearer for empathy in society and the moral conscience of the world to just ignore the identity because it's not yours. It seems totally cynical to me and contrary to the spirit of everything that the left ought to stand for and believes itself to stand for and does stand for in in many cases. And uh, it's really a very important point. Let me try and be a little bit more generous and perhaps... (laughs) You know, not ignoring the differences between the identities that we occupy. But I think it's, it comes back to something we were talking about a while ago, which is I think among a lot of, and these are mostly kind of feminists, you know, black feminist women, I think that's how they identify. And some white feminist women too, actually. It wasn't just the black women in Congress, but is a sense the gains are a bit fragile. They're precarious. And so anything that seems to push against a continued focus on women and girls threatens to reverse the progress that's been made. There is, I think, you even saw some of this in the discussion around what COVID was doing uh, to gender relations and so on too. There is a sense of, this is incredibly precarious. You know, this could we, could, we could be back in a, you know, deep patriarchy tomorrow if we're not careful. But it doesn't feel, the victories don't feel secure enough yet, I think, for people to almost like just breathe enough to be able to say, okay, let's look at these issues now. Let's look at some of the issues for boys and men. But actually, I think the gains are incredibly solid and growing in many cases. You know, we have a, a labor market now where 40% of women earn more than the median man. And that was, that's up from 13% in 1979. So it's one of those figures that some people are like, wait, hang on, let me get my head around that. But it's, you, know, you have an overlapping distribution. Mm-hmm. Like if the distributions are exactly the same, then it would be then 50% of women would earn more than the the median man by definition, 50 and 50, but 40% earn more than typical men. And so the economic situation of men and women has been transformed in a way that is not going to be undone. This is here for good. Similarly, some of the cultural changes think around marriage, they are not going away. And so I think we've got, I think we're secure enough now in some of those gains that we can look at some of the issues facing boys and men, especially black boys and men and working class boys and men. And we could talk about white working, white working class boys as well, without that being a distraction from the continued problems that women and girls face. And let's be clear, there are many issues where we still have to be working hard on behalf of women and girls. It's not like they've all gone away. The job is not done, but it's done a huge amount. And we now have then earned ourselves the space to be able to look properly at some of the issues that are now emerging, in some cases, worsening for boys and men. That's, that's kind of the hope, I think, of my project. Yeah. Um, so an, another topic closely related to this, and th- this goes to Roland Fryer's research as well, is he has one paper from the 2000s, which tried to come up with an, a mathematically rigorous measure of the phenomenon of acting white. This is acting mm-hmm. white is an accusation that black kids sometimes suffer from. If you are too studious, if you do too well in school, if you are a teacher's pet, you can be accused by other black students of acting white, of, of trying to be right, kind of being like a race traitor. This is something I've talked about before. It's something... Um, Prominent figures like Jay-Z and um, Michelle Obama have mentioned as being problematic. It's also something that a lot of people are uncomfortable acknowledging because they view it as, quote unquote, blaming the victim. Mm-hmm. But in my experience and in as well as that Roland Fryer study, the acting white epithet is more of a thing for black boys than it is for black girls, which comes back yeah. to the general association of education with the feminine. Yeah which is a, yeah. and, a recent thing. And that might then play out differently for different groups. I'd need to think harder about what that would mean. But I'm thinking, I think it was Obama that had the image of the black boy walking into the library, glancing mm-hmm. over his shoulder before walking in. And mm-hmm. it was trying to capturing exactly that sense of, like, just check mm-hmm. no one's going to see me before I do mm-hmm. that. Which, But I think that, I think we've made huge strides in terms of particularly getting girls to think about educational success. and. I worry that you know the equivalent of acting white would be to say like acting girl, acting girly, right, or mm. acting female, acting feminine for a boy to take seriously his studies, to do well at school, to. And I think it's always been true to some extent, but it's now become incredibly consequential in a way that it didn't before. Because previously, I mean, girls used to be outperforming boys in high school and in the sixties. It's just that we didn't know because 
none of them went to college. Mm. And so the fact that girls were doing better than boys even then, I think tells us something about the structure of the education system to come back to where we were before. But as teaching becomes more female, as colleges become more female, as educational success becomes more correlated with being female, I do worry that the very idea of educational success will become seen as feminine or even more so than it is now. And then, of course, you're into a self-fulfilling prophecy um, because then it's more likely that boys will be concerned about educational success too. And we do know this happens, right? Certain activities become associated with certain with with one sex or the other. And when that happens, it's harder to get the other sex to go into. We just talked about the labor market. It's just hard to persuade people that they should do something if they don't see any many people like them doing it, including by by sex. And so I am worried about that. And I think it's one of the reasons to act now. I think rather than we rather than waiting, and there are some places, some countries in the world now and some universities where it's 70-30 female male. And I think rather than waiting till we get to a point where the skew has become so great in, fa- in favor of girls and women that boys almost select out, thereby you know, you, then, then you've reached a vicious circle point. Then it's better to act now. Let's try and let's try and stem the tide now before we get to that point. Because I am otherwise worried about the identity point that you just referred to, and I think it is a bigger issue for gender mm-hmm. than it is for race. But it may well intersect. Use I'll use the verb again, perhaps for the last time. Intersect differently for black boys, say, than for boys in general. I don't know. All right, Richard, this has been really fun for me and um, informative. And I, I think it's a, it's a topic I've never gotten to deal with at length or in this level of detail, but have been thinking about in fits and starts for a long time. So your book is called Of Boys and Men. And yes, everyone interested in this conversation should go pick it up. There's a lot in there that we didn't get to cover. So I highly recommend you pick that up. And before I let you go, can you point my listeners in your direction online, a Twitter handle or a website or anything like that? Yeah, sure. The, the, the easy thing to remember is just to put a V between Richard and Reeves. Otherwise, you get the other Richard Reeves. But I'm richardvreeves.com. I'm Richard V. Reeves on Twitter. Uh, you can also Google and find me uh, at the Brookings Institution as well, where I have a new project specifically looking at boys and men. So this is not not a subject that I'm going to be letting go anytime soon. So I'd love people to to join the conversation. I've just started a Substack, which is called Of Boys and Men, where I'll be posting weekly. So I'm hoping to keep this conversation going with people. So thank you so much for having me on and for giving me the chance to talk about it. Awesome. My pleasure, Richard. Take care. If you appreciate the work I do, You can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.